May the peace of God fill your hearts with faith and confidence, silencing any doubt or apprehension or uncertainty concerning God's love for you personally and His will that you remain forever a part of His eternal family in Christ Jesus. Amen. Dear fellow Christians, the theme under which we study God's Word this morning is, as you may have noted in your bulletin, the poor substitute. I've no doubt that everyone here can come up with examples if you put your mind to it. If you just think about it for a moment, I'll give you a couple just to get you started. Some time ago, I was flipping through the channels on a Sunday afternoon, a rare occurrence, but I happened upon a church service. And curious, I paused, and I happened to tune in just at the beginning of the sermon, just when they were reading the text. And the text they had chosen was a sonnet from Emily Dickinson. I think you can agree that as a basis for a sermon, a text from, or a sonnet from Emily Dickinson is a poor substitute for what God himself has said. So that's the kind of thing we're talking about, poor substitutes. And once you get started, the list is endless. Study the statesmen that founded our republic, who pledged their lives and fortunes, and in many cases gave up each, or both, and then compare those that we elect, by and large, that we elect today. And, and you'll see you begin to wonder, where are these kinds of individuals? And it's hard not to see them as poor substitutes for what we had before. Our children's education, what our children are, be, are being taught in schools now, is a poor substitute for what they were taught even a few decades ago. The list goes on and on where you can identify poor substitutes for something else, something that we used to have. In fact, if you think about it, it's even possible for individuals to be poor substitutes of themselves. It's sad to see those who have, have been slowly fading from the public eye scratch and grope and claw and do everything within their power to maintain or regain their fame, their popularity. To see starlets cut and tuck and pull in a vain attempt to appear young still. It's just embarrassing to watch a 70-plus-year-old drug-addled rock star try to pretend like he's still 20. Or an athlete who is well past his prime intent on clinging to that fame that he once had by playing past his prime or letting, opening his mouth and letting all of that silliness fall out. Those are poor substitutes of their former selves. And it's not just those guys, is it? 
Christians at their own peril, to our own peril, imagine that we are immune. Conversion does not render us immune either from sin or from silliness. In fact, Satan, if anything, seems to redouble his efforts once we're brought to faith. That's why parents need to continually remind people taking your children on a secular outing is good, but it's a poor substitute for taking them to church. Reading your child a bedtime story is a poor substitute for reading them to them from God's Word. Telling your children what they should do is a poor substitute for showing them by example. The devil, in fact, tries the same sleight of hand in connection with doctrine and God's church, offering, for example, millennialism as a poor substitute for that kingdom that Christ has established, offering instead to be rich and powerful as are the godless now, instead of the kingdom that God has promised in heaven, a poor substitute at best. He offers the poor substitute of the adoration of men to religious leaders if they will but compromise God's word. The list goes on and on. See if you can identify yet another poor substitute in our text for this morning. See if you can identify as you hear the words of God, the words of God, for which there, are, there is no substitute. See if you can identify what Jesus here gives us by way of example. That text is found in the seventh chapter of Mark's Gospel, beginning there with the 14th verse. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So far the words of our merciful God. Thanks be to God for giving us his word as our sure, certain guide. Asking him also to bless us through the study of these sure, certain words this morning, so we pray. Sanctify us by your truth, O Lord. Your word is truth. Amen.
Clearly, we live in a society that values form over substance. Maybe more so than at any other time in history. Now, I will readily admit, for example, that I don't really believe that I understand high fashion at all, obviously. Along with most men, I actually wear this as a badge of honor. I don't really want to get it. I see someone dressed like a peacock that's been run over by a combine, and I only feel sorrow and embarrassment, and actually I'm somewhat compassionate to the individual dressed like that. And then I started thinking about it, and I wonder if I don't partly get it in this that it seems that one of the goals of high fashion at least is to mask disguise hide in part or in whole the person the individual underneath it and it's hard to deny that when you see that peacock strutting that you don't look at the person. The person just sort of disappears, and it's all about what's on the outside. Form over substance. And it's an obvious, poor substitute. Because again, God isn't concerned with the outside as much as he is the inside. Again, I I can't imagine anyone denying that We live in a society that does value form over substance, the things that don't matter more than things that do. It's hard to argue that that's not the case when, for example, individuals, occupations like firemen, nurses, engineers, farmers, ranchers, are paid far less than, for example, professional athletes, models, actresses, Things like that. Why would we value the one so much more highly and not the other? Oh, we value, I guess, those who can build us a home or put out a fire if it's burning that home down. We value them, but we absolutely adore, as a society, those who can entertain us, make us laugh, or win a meaningless sporting content. Why would we do that, especially in light of the fact that we could do without the one nicely, but we can't do without those who build and serve and produce form over substance, the poor substitute. This brings us finally to our text. And did you, did you pick up on that poor substitute identified there by Jesus? It's just this, that the children of this world will eventually learn to justify the entire list that Jesus gave us of things that are bad and attempt to substitute something else that really doesn't matter, that isn't offensive to our God. It's remarkable, in fact, When you listen again to this list, it it sounds like 
the plot of the average Hollywood movie. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, coming to a theater near you. And it will probably be sold out. The point is, without that inner change that the Holy Spirit works in us, we are, every one of us, enslaved to such things. And we will seek as a substitute to obedience to God, we will seek a substitute substitute that is easier, more comfortable, more attainable, something we're willing to give up or do. And then here's where, again, the whole thing takes a turn into the surreal because while society accepts and will learn to justify the bad list, evil thoughts, sexual immorality, adultery, and all the rest, our society has decided that they will offer as a substitute exactly what Jesus said in our text does not matter. I will be very concerned with what I put into my body. I will be very concerned with the food that I eat. That's my morality. That's what I offer to God. It's exactly backwards from what our Savior said. Here's the things that matter. Here's the things that don't. The world says, this is what I'm going to do, and this is what I won't do. Why do we talk about this? Why do we even bring up the godless? That's a good question, isn't it? Why do we even talk about what others do who don't yet know Jesus as their Savior? But we don't talk about it because, or to make us feel better rather than they are, to hold ourselves up as superior, to look down on them, look at those guys. We don't do it obviously because we want to be like them. We don't do it because we want what they have and we envy them. We bring these things up in this context for at least two reasons. First, to remind ourselves that this same evil is in us. It's not to say, look at those guys. It's to say, this lies in me, in my old Adam. It lies crouching like some wild beast, ready to render and tear. To remind us that we have to every day beat into submission this old Adam because this is what this old Adam is capable of, offering us, through Satan's temptation, that same poor substitute that we can set ourselves up as the ones who will say, no, this I will not do, God, but this I will. I will not avoid these things, and I've instead decided to offer you this. Know then that this is a lawn that we will have to mow every single day of our lives to beat this old Adam into subjection every day and to put on day by day this new man. And it's hard to identify how exactly we do that. I think you know. When you start your day with a devotion, when you start your day with prayer and you include it throughout the day, you know that you're being led by or that you put on that new man. If your thoughts are evil, 
if your thoughts center around those things that God himself told us are evil, then you know it's time to, again, beat that old Adam into submission. That's the first reason we don't talk about, or that we do talk about the godless in our sermons. The second is to learn to identify the threats. Because again, what's out there is in here, in our hearts, in that evil old Adam within us, our sinful flesh. So we use them as sort of marker boys to remind us what lies just beneath the surface of our old Adam. And we cannot be trusted. That old Adam in us cannot be trusted. Because that beast never goes away, not before we're taken from this veil of tears. It's always there, always ready. And you know that's true in your life because you can identify times in your life when you've allowed that beast a little slack on the leash. And you know the result. You remember the Pharisee in the temple? How he prayed? Quotation marks around prayed because it says he really was just talking to himself. wasn't talking to God. His words, I thank God that I am not like other men, for I fast twice each week. You get it? It's exactly what Jesus was talking about. Here was a man steeped in sin, guilty of most or all of the things in the list that God said defile the heart, and yet he justified himself on the basis of what did or didn't go into his mouth at certain times. It's no different now, is it? In fact, it's, it's interesting if you've been in different parts of the country or the world even. There's different versions of the same thing everywhere. The southern version is, y'all, I don't eat. I mean, I, I eat whatever, but I don't drink alcohol. I don't smoke. God is saying, and? The northern version? Well, it's, it's Lent. I've given up meat for Lent. The Muslim version? It's Ramadan. So I don't eat anything between sunup and sundown. The Jewish version? I don't eat anything that's not been blessed by a rabbi and therefore kosher. The New Age version? My body is a temple of Gaia. I eat nothing but what comes directly from Mother Earth. It's all the same. It's all a poor substitute. A perfect example of the problem Jesus identified in our text. And the bottom line is that what God identified as evil will always be that which the world wants, that which our old Adam wants. It will never be trendy. It will never be popular. We'll always, according to that old Adam, seek something that's easier, more pleasing and justify the evil within us. Which brings us to another question. Why even talk about sin at all? When we know that God has already, in Christ, accepted Jesus' life and death as a sin payment for the entire world. So why even talk about sin? 
does sin even matter anymore? The answer is, as you know, we are saved by God's grace through faith alone, but the one thing that can destroy that faith is sin. And when we allow that sin in our hearts, it twists us, it warps us, and it eventually will destroy us. Here's an example. Think of it this way. Anyone who's ever tried to bend something back to straight knows about what we're talking about here. Have you ever tried to do that? You bend something back that's stringy that got bent. It happens, those of you who are familiar with, with sawzalls, and you're sawing and that blade comes out and hits the end of the wood and it just bends. So you try to bend it back. How do you do it? Anyone who's ever tried it knows you have to bend it past where you want it to because you know it's going to snap back a little or a lot. What happens if you've ever bent it past that point? It doesn't snap back quite to straight. You think the devil doesn't understand this about us? He seeks to, with whatever means at his disposal, through the world or on sinful flesh, whatever, he seeks to bend and pervert. And his goal is to bend us past, to continually stretch us, to continually shock us evermore. Because he knows that if he bends us far enough, we're never going to bend back to straight. We learn to accept more and more. We never get God's standard right. And so we accept more sin in our lives. We tolerate more. The things that used to shock and offend us no longer do. And he just keeps bending and pressing. Because he wants that sin to exist in our lives. Because he wants us to be destroyed by it. The remedy is, first of all, never to hear Jesus' words as applying to others. And never to hear them as though superficial. In the first verse of our text, Jesus, and he called the people to him again and said to them, and this should get our attention, hear me, all of you, and understand Jesus is speaking to us. That's why these words were preserved. It's not for entertainment. He's here speaking to us through this word. And he calls us and says, All of you, hear me and understand. This has to be relevant. Jesus doesn't do that with things that don't matter. So he's getting our attention. There's a reason he left no one out. And never regard these words as superficial, as though God is just advocating behavior modification. As though Jesus is concerned that we try to do the right thing. Kind of straighten it out a little bit. You guys are, you know, kind of full and stuff. Just get it a little bit straighter, will you please? Scripture isn't about that. What is it about? It's about Christ Jesus as Savior. And that's the point here. You look at this, you read that text over, and you think, where's the gospel here? The gospel is the heart and soul of every part of Scripture. And what Jesus is communicating to us here again is, you can't do it. Just as anyone who's tried to bend something straight 
that was once bent crooked? You can never do it. Not really. So ask yourselves this. Knowing now what's evil, knowing now what God hates, what's sinful to Him, can you avoid it? Can you do it? Knowing now that evil thoughts are bad, are there no evil thoughts coming from you in your heart? Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, covenant, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All gone? All good? No. Still there, aren't they? If anything, this just causes us to sin knowing that what we do is sinful. We need a Savior. We need a Savior. Not an example. Not just one to point out our errors. We needed someone to do what we could not because we can never make ourselves straight, right, pure, holy. We've already failed, so the loss is already in the books. But even going forward, knowing what we do, we can't supply it. And so the whole point of what Jesus is giving us here is not, this is what you need to do to make me love you. It is you cannot do it. You never have, you never will be able to. I did it for you. That's what makes Christianity different from every other religion in the world. Every other religion points to sin and says, get it right, do it better, offer to God a perfect life and He will love you. Christianity says, this is what you're supposed to be and you'll never be that. So you need an outside source of perfection, an outside source of goodness. So when you and I read this as Christians, we don't stand pridefully. This I have done. I thank thee, Lord, that I am not as others. We fall at the foot of the cross and say, Thank you, Jesus, for doing what I could not, would not ever do. Thank you for the perfection. Thank you, God the Father, for sending your Son. Thank you for Jesus for doing everything right and then offering that perfection on the cross of Calvary to pay for my sins. The sins I keep doing. The evil that still resides in me, in my sinful flesh. Thank you, Jesus. Because the perfection that you offer to God is in every way sufficient, perfect, not just for the sins of the world, but for my sins. All of the evil thoughts of this past week and this past life, all of the sexual immorality, every theft, every murder, and you know what's connected from the fifth commandment in, in what's associated with or what comprises murder, even a bad thought. Every time you hurt your brother, your neighbor, Every lustful thought, adultery, every coveting, every wickedness, every deceit. This list is piling up in my mind. Is it in yours? Every one of those things carried by Jesus to the cross, gone. God says, not only are they gone, I remember them no more. You are clean, holy, pure. This is the Christian faith, and for this there is no substitute. Amen.